This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Mother's Day is just around the corner, and it's time to pamper the special moms in your life. In what better way than with Osea's limited edition skincare sets, featuring clean, vegan, cruelty-free products that are safe for your skin and the planet. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been making seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. This Mother's Day, Osea has two limited edition sets, perfect for gifting or keeping for yourself. Their Golden Glow Body Set includes three clinically proven bestsellers for silky, smooth, glowing skin, while the Glow and Go Facial Set has everything she needs to achieve spa-level results at home. They're so beautiful, you can skip the wrapping. For a limited time, you can save up to $48 on Osea's sets, plus get free shipping. That's Mother's Day made easy. Pamper the moms in your life and get 10% off your first order site-wide with code MOM at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code MOM. This is the Cork Today replay on C103. As we welcome you along to the programme, John Paul's taking your calls at 1850 333 103. Anything you want to share with us and you can text or WhatsApp to 0862 103 103. And I want to start this morning uh, with the story out of Limerick where management at University of Limerick are holding an emergency meeting this morning to discuss street a street party in College Court yesterday where a huge gathering of students partied with drinking, singing and fireworks. Maxine Bramley is a reporter with our sister station in Limerick Live 95 and uh, Maxine joins me this morning. Good morning to you, Maxine. Good morning, Patricia. And How are you? I'm very well and, and you're welcome to the programme. I'm also told you, you're a UL graduate so you do know what it's like to have been a student. I am. I graduated from the University of Limerick in 2019 so I'm not too far removed from, okay. you know, the student life, I suppose. Okay, talk to me about what happened yesterday and how many people were believed to have been involved in this street party. Yes, so what happened yesterday was um, obviously the street party which took place in Kerry's Fort Avenue in College Court, which would be uh, very well known to be um, a a hotspot for students as many many people live there off campus. It's off-campus accommodation, private rental accommodation. And um, what happened was there was the street party going on um, from early evening. Some reason saying that it started early in the day and, and more people just arrived to the scene and it just got bigger and bigger. Um, and Gardy received reports of this street party where um, in footage and videos which which are widely shared on uh, social media, you can see that quite a number, dozens and dozens of students were um, congregating, you know, with no regard to social distancing, playing loud music, drinking outdoors. And um, in some of the videos, you can also see that fireworks were set off, which, you know, is quite harrowing and, and uh, dangerous. Mm. It's, it's worrying to see. But Gardy anyway responded uh, to the reports and and there was a policing operation in place and quite a significant number of Garda units attended the scene. Uh, they said that if they tried to 
take it with a graduated uh, policing response, so they try to engage with the students or people involved uh, first before eventually having to resort to um, arrests um, at around 7.15 in the evenings for non-compliance of public health regulations and three um, young men in their 20s were arrested for But it was But it was at 7.15 in the evening. It was as early as that that the Gardaí were starting to make arrests. That's right. So it had started early enough in in the afternoon um, as far as we're aware. aware. So I suppose with uh, it is important to note here that usually around this time of the year um, was we have something called RAC. It's a charity week where um, social events take place around the college and it's always known to be quite rowdy and quite, um, you know, there's there's parties and there's events and there's social gatherings. Obviously, it's not on this year because of COVID-19, but it might have just been a case that some a minority of students um, might take it upon themselves to still celebrate the week. And that Did the majority good. of them just disperse though when the Gardaí arrived? Yeah, so when the Guardi arrived, um, they they did kind of run away and they dispersed. However, um, some were arrested and, you know, they continued to not comply with public health regulations. How I understand it is that there were attempts by Guardi members to, as I said, engage with uh, the individuals who were involved in this um, to break it up. But um, eventually they did have to resort to um, arresting People and they also issued around 36 payment notices for the breach of uh, the Health Act. And what so, are what are local residents saying? Is is it a common occurrence in that area? We've been hearing of gatherings and house parties, and UL has come under light for under uh, media attention recently for um, students not complying to um, public health regulations at this time, and. Um, I suppose it just kind of, it just, it just, you know, amalgamated into this big party now yesterday. I, I think it was a long time coming, really, um, as we have been hearing of, you know, maybe smaller gatherings, um, not as not as large and as, as prominent as this one now. But um, um, it's important here to note as well that Gardy have commenced an investigation into this as well. So they're looking for the organisers of the event and um, a file will be sent to the Director of Public Prosecution. So and levels, levels of COVID-19 in that area, Maxine, are they high? They have been high. So um, it's in the east um, electoral area of the city and they have been found to be the highest in Limerick and um, recently enough we're the high, one of the highest in the country. And um, NEFED have attributed that partly to, um, you know, activity in the student community in that area. So Castle Troy would be in that area. And a lot of uh, University of Limerick students live there, um, despite um, college being mostly online at the moment. Um, But I suppose a lot of students would have still taken out or would have still rented accommodation. Maybe they didn't get back their um, deposits and rent for it. So they decided to stay there. So that might be a contributing factor as well. but yeah, the community is very shocked uh, last night and this morning hearing this and people are quite disappointed. Mm. Um, and even from students, a lot of them and the majority of them, I would say, are quite embarrassed to be associated with this. Because again, with whenever events like this happen, it's always a small minority, but it's a small minority that ruin it for the majority of, of people. And, and I know because I mentioned it on the programme a couple of weeks ago, I mean, the UL have been attempting to try to tackle the rise in cases. They, they were offering free on-campus 
COVID tests, weren't they at one stage? They were, that's right. So they're... You've been placed on hold. Please wait. Okay, Maxine has placed me on hold and I'd say she doesn't realise uh, she's placed me on hold. Anyway, I'm, I'm, wrapping, her, I'm wrapping her up there. So uh, it's OK. That was uh, Maxine uh, Bramley because that was something that UL did a number of weeks ago to try to, they were starting to realise that they had too many cases amongst uh, students. But I mean, if that kind of carry on, uh, if anybody saw, I don't know if you saw any of the video footage from, uh, from, from last night, but it, I mean, at one stage it looked like it was a kind of a mini festival that they were all off in Magaluf on their holidays. They were having a jolly good time, completely oblivious to the fact that there's COVID-19 in an area where they've got, you know, a high number of cases. And when you look and when you listen to the daily figures and, you know, we've been doing so well in Cork and that we haven't been mentioned when they announce where the higher number of cases are every day when they do the, the figures. Limerick has been up there almost day on day and, you know, they're trying to do their be- their best to suppress COVID-19 in the Limerick area and then you've got young people these young students are young educated people of the future thinking that the pandemic you know it's a it's not going to affect them so why can't we party and I know people will say it's very difficult it's hard for young people and it's hard for people when they're in university and they want to be having the university life and you know the lifestyle that goes with that but gang we're living in a pandemic could you just cop yourself on a small bit anyway your thoughts welcomed on that but as I say the UL this morning are meeting with Angarda Siakona uh, in the hope that they can try to stem it and stop it. And I don't know what more that they can do or what more that the Gardaí can do, but they've arrested uh, uh, two. The fixed penalty notices have gone to 30 people and now there's a big push to try to find out who actually organised. Will they ever be able to find out? Was there one person that organised it or was it a group of people? I don't know. But if they do, certainly a file will go to the DPP. 1850 And while that's the downside to what's happening at the moment, there is great sense of hope and positivity when it comes to COVID-19 and really strong indication and hopes that the third wave of COVID-19 is finally starting to retreat with the number of daily cases yesterday when they were announced the lowest level since mid-December. Other really good positive signs on the number of affected people in hospital. They went under 500 for the first time this year. I mean, that's a great great good news uh, story and yesterday it was 359 new cases were confirmed and the last time we had figures that low you'd have to go back into mid-December. The number of seriously ill patients, the ones in intensive care, they are also continuing to reduce. Now sadly there was a report of 14 people who died and that's 14 families absolutely devastated with that news and the Health Minister uh, Stephen Donnelly confirming that the COVID infections in hospital staff has also dropped uh, by around 95%. So that's certainly welcomed news for those who are working on the front line. And obviously that's directly, it's got to be directly linked to the protection from vaccinations and obviously along with the falling community uh, transmissions. And the Deputy Chief Medical Officer, Roland Glim, cautiously optimistic, he says, while we see the drop in new cases. Now, they did say yesterday that it could be attributed to the weekend uh, effect. The low numbers, he said, was very, very welcome. But he said to please hold firm to the public health advice 
and together he said we can continue to protect and build on the progress we have made over the last uh, two months and that's you know that message going out to please hold firm and while we were all you know listening to that saying this is great suddenly the news was coming through from uh, Limerick that there was mad house, mad street parties going on with uh, many many dozens of people uh, gathered but certainly we'll take the good news that infections among hospital staff dropped by 95% uh, but the overall positivity numbers dropping and the numbers in hospital so that is welcome to news and proof that the lockdown is working. Veronica on Twitter to at C103 Cork says it's hard on young people not being able to enjoy being on campus and having a normal college uh, life. They weren't able to do gap uh, years and of course the Leaving Cert class of last year missed out on so much as well but Veronica said last night was uncalled for in uh, Limerick. Yeah and I think people will have a lot of understanding on young people and what they're missing out on. Indeed loads of age groups are missing out on various uh, things and you know life is different for everybody but you are right last night with the scenes from Limerick uh, simply absolutely uncalled for. Now thank you for your uh, message Veronica. 1850 I'm interested in listeners views on the story that came out yesterday from Pontins you know the British holiday parks where they kept this undesirable list of surnames. Now it was done in an attempt to keep members of the Irish traveller community away from their holiday parks and the uh, UK uh, Human Rights and Equality Watchdog are calling Pontins out on this. The list was kept by Pontins. Now it was displayed on a staff's internal server and it contained about 40 largely Irish names. Now they include names like Cash, Delaney, Gallagher, Murphy, O'Brien and then news of the list was broken by I newspaper. It was a whistleblower. Ponton's owner has now entered into an illegal, illegal arrangement with the, human, the UK Human Rights uh, Watchdog after the whistleblower revealed it was using this and it says undesirable guests list and it was to exclude gypsies and uh, travellers. Now it's according to the, this is the UK Equality and Human Rights uh, Commission. It said that staff monitored calls and they refused or cancelled bookings made by people with an Irish accent or an Irish surname. And Ponton's commercial vehicle policy excluded gypsies and travellers from their holiday parks and they call them undesirable guests and we don't want them in uh, Ponton's. And the Ponton's owner, which is Britannica Jinky Jersey Limited said it's now working to enhance its staff training and procedures to further promote equality uh, throughout the business. And there is a list of uh, names and actually the whistleblower, I actually have a copy of what was up on the internal server for the for the workers in Pontins, obviously, you know, they were at a call centre and they were also giving them, you know, advice on what to say and how to cancel the holiday and terminate uh, the holiday for the party if you've by mistake booked or you've booked and then realised that the person was of a traveller background or of a gypsy background. And there's a full list of uh, 14 names. Let me just run down through some of them uh, for fear that you might have this surname and you may have wanted to stay at Pontins and you got turned down or when you rang, you were told 
told, oh sorry, completely booked for the dates that you wanted, even though some people were, were saying to them, well I've just checked online and you've got vacancy and then of course they, they had a line that they were told to use that if somebody comes back with that, say oh well you know the online one isn't as up to date as the one we have here, I'm sorry, no available booking um, on that date. So anyone with the surname uh, Boylan, Boyle, Cash, Connors, Corcoran, Delaney, Doherty, Gallagher, Horn. Now, Keefe is unusual in that they've spelt it wrong. They've got, I've never seen Keefe spelled like this, K-W-E-F-E. And this was the way Pontus was spelling uh, the names. Lee is there. McDonough, the McGinleys, the McGinns, the McGinnesses. They're not allowed in. The McMahons, Mulligans, Mongans, Murphys. If you're a Mrs. Murphy, you can't stay well, you wouldn't be. You might be allowed now, but you wouldn't be allowed when this was in vogue. Oh, now there's a lot of o, O's on it. There's O'Briens, O'Connells, O'Donnells, O'Donoghue, O'Mahony, O'Rallies, and then there's Sheridan, Stokes, Walshes, and Wards. Not allowed to stay at Pontins. Anyway, they've been called out, and I'm fair due to the whistleblower who was working in Pontins and actually ended up. It felt so bad about this uh, blacklist that he just decided this is completely wrong. This is a you know a breach of equality. It's he, the whistleblower if it's he or she called it out as racism as well at the time and decided no. So went to the Equality and Human Rights Commission. Obviously, is no longer working at uh, Ponson Ponson, so is without a job uh, as well. So I'm interested in your thoughts on that. As I say, it's a story that broke yesterday and was certainly getting a lot of media attention yesterday and. It's making all of the papers today. 1850-333-103. John Paul taking your calls. You can text her WhatsApp 0862-103-103. Court today on C103. With Sean Cusack Insurance's Kinsale. Now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. Want great advice? You know who to talk to. CMIG.ie. Disgust and disappointment have been expressed by politicians right across Cork following the decision this week by Bank of Ireland to close nine branches in the county. Some listeners yesterday reacting to the news worried that the buildings would be left vacant and could even end up derelict. Well, North Cork Councillor Bernard Moynihan has a suggestion for possible use of the Bank of Ireland buildings when they close in September. And he joins me. Good morning to you, Bernard. Good morning, Patricia, and good morning to your listeners. You're, you're very welcome. Now, you feel Bank of Ireland should offer the buildings to on post? Well, absolutely. And I have written to Minister Michael McGrath as yesterday and Michael Minister Sean Fleming saying that these buildings, uh, the government owns a small percentage of Bank of Ireland, and I believe the government should intervene and have discussions with senior management that these buildings in our towns around the country, in the first instance, be made available to Unpost, uh, because our, the contractors who operate the Unpost services in the towns around the country, because, you know, and, and, and this whole idea that you can transfer, close down a branch and it all will transfer to on post in six months is unrealistic. A lot of elderly customers, a lot of people, you know, I know we're moving towards a cashless society, but I've been talking to hairdressers, people in business, bank, different businesses that have to lodge money on Saturday nights because, you know, they have cash after the weekend, they have to put it into the night safe and all that kind of business. So, you know, there's an opportunity here for to grow the on post business. But, there's, but that opportunity cannot be realised in the short time frame there is. The, the time frame should be extended. And if they are to close the bank, we'll say, in Cantork or Mill Street or provincial towns all over the country, those buildings should be made available in the first instance to unpost, to continue to, to expand their services they, before they're put on the open market. 
And I, I don't want, the last thing we want in Cantork in particular, there's enough dereliction in Cantork, particularly in the top of Strand Street, is we want our, our town vibrant. We want our buildings vibrant. And the way to make our buildings vibrant and to make our town vibrant is to have people in the town. And many of those Bank of Ireland buildings are on main streets. They're on very good locations. Yeah. And those, and I have had a lot of calls and texts and so forth in the last number of days about this whole concept. But certainly I'm asking the government to intervene with senior management in Bank of Ireland and ask them that if, if, first of all, I'm saying the time span should be expanded. It can't all happen in six months. A lot of elderly people, you know, we're not, everybody is not online. There's a second issue, Patricia, which I think you have highlighted several times in your programme is the lack of broadband. Yeah. There are some places with no mobile phone coverage. Well, only yesterday when we started talking about this and this whole thing about banks, you know, wanting everyone to deal online, most of the banks will send you on a code to your mobile phone. The amount of people that said they're sitting there waiting for this code to arrive and, of course, by the time it does arrive because of bad mobile phone signal, it's gone out of date. They've got to go through it all over again. I mean, totally frustrating. If you leave County Hall and you drive to Charleville, you come down to Bellamer Quirk, come down over Ned, go out over towards Fremont, onto Domina. About 70% of that route, there's no mobile co- mobile phone coverage on it. There are several and several customers out there. Now, there are some, like, and it's a, it's a huge issue. Yes, people are moving towards more and more mobile, using more of these apps and so forth. But you cannot use the app if you haven't got mobile phone coverage and if you haven't got broadband. Mm. Mm. And if you and and even if you have the broadband and no mobile phone coverage, because you can get the broadband and then the mo- no mobile phone coverage, because you have to get, you know all this when you input the number, there's a security code that comes to your mobile then. Yeah, and, and if, if that, if that doesn't coverage, arrive, you you can't do your banking online. Exactly. Yeah. So, like, but I'm certainly saying that we need, you know, we you know this this whole idea has to be there has to be a longer time span. There's been more thought through and certainly the buildings should not be plugged off on the open market unless we're on post or the operator operating on post in the town is given first option on them. They have to, like, on post buildings that are made bigger, they have to provide a wider range of service, there's going to be more employees in there, they have to be made accessible for disabilities and so forth. So like there's a huge job of work to do here and I'm all, I'm in the council since 14 and I'm hugely, hugely supportive of the unpost operation and our post offices and maintaining our post office. They're becoming a vital hub in the community. And I'm talking to local postmen. Timmy Noonan there in Cantork is telling me that the, the, the amount of parcels and stuff has, have gone up inc- incredibly since the, since the COVID came in. So like, this, is a, this is all, it might all sound great in Dublin. It might all sound great in Dublin 4. But when you bring that down to Duhalla and you talk to customers in Rockchapel, Torlease, Knocknagree, who've been with Bank of Ireland for years, and there might be, you know, I'm only barely tech savvy myself, I'm improving, but certainly we need to, this process needs to be taught out. Um, people need to get an opportunity to, to manage their situation, and I think there should be a longer time span, definitely two years. And I think in, the, and, and in that process that UnPost should be offered those buildings if the UnPost contractor or UnPost... Will they be able to, to afford it though? To, but that's what I'm trying to say. The government should incentivise 
they should be made available at 50% of the cost or at no cost. Okay, okay. Do you believe the pandemic has been used as a cover for the closures? Well, I mean, they're using... We're all within the five kilometre. People can travel. And, you know, people are not going to be going to banks because you congregate in banks because it's, it's you socially distance and all that. So, of course, the amount of people using banks has gone way down. People are only tra- travelling now for very, very necessary journeys. And the advice is that is what has to happen. Necessary journeys, you you know, people are only going out once a week for their shopping. So the, t- the, the cities are empty, the, the towns are empty at the moment because there's only the people, the restaurants are closed. So, like, of course, it's very easy to say our banks are down by 50%. But Jesus, we're after going through once in a generation, once in a hundred years pandemic which I hope is coming to an end. But we were encouraging people to stay at home. We were telling people to only make it if it's absolutely necessary. A lot of people very upset uh, about Bank of Ireland. I have to say, hi, I'm living in Dunmanway, says the listener. It's a disgrace. The Bank of Ireland are planning uh, to close. Uh, I think of the people in rural areas. They really need to reconsider their position and keep these uh, banks uh, open. Hi, Patricia. I think... uh, Councillor Bernard Moynihan is right in saying give the Bank of Ireland buildings to on post. They did that in Drumcolagher in County Limerick. And actually a school friend of mine says, Jim, used to live overhead the bank many years ago when her dad was bank manager of AIB Bank. But I'm not sure if there's any use made of the upstairs now other than the... um, where it's been used as a post office and actually that's a good point I remember that growing up as well the bank manager's family always lived above uh, the bank there's most of those buildings they're big buildings they're there's there's living they're space upstairs as well that could be used well they're big buildings they're in the centre of the towns and the, the whole idea now is town centre development and having making our towns vibrant the last thing we need is another derelict building and another derelict building unused you know we have a huge issue there in the top of Strand Street in Cantorque with a derelict building, which I've been raising continuously with the council. And apparently the property, the, the rights of property owners in our constitution is very hard to get over. It's very hard to, through court orders or compulsory orders or whatever, the rights of property owners is very protected in the constitution. So there's another issue going on out there that needs to be tackled, tackled is dereliction. Mm. But certainly the, 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 the banks in the rural towns, which are uh, earmarked for closure, I'm saying that we need a longer time span for it to happen and we need in that intervening time that those premises are made available to the local and post operators if they wish to take them up. Okay, a listener saying uh, about Mill Street closing, we need Mill Street to be vibrant, we need uh, our bank. John says Bank of Ireland is abandoning their customers. Now the customers should abandon them by closing their accounts. Doing bank business in a post office is not very private as people are very near each other because they're very small premises. The exact point that you're making, uh, Bernard, for example, will the post office clerk, says John, be able to see the balance of your uh, account? I don't know what, how that's all going to uh, work out. But, but, but the point John is making ties in with the point you're making, Bernard. Many of our post offices are small. You can't help but hear what's going on. Whereas by the very nature, bank buildings in order to offer privacy are larger buildings. And people will want to keep what they're doing private. Absolutely. Like these buildings are big buildings. There's offices, there's different things and people can go in there and they're customer friendly and there's space and if you're in a wheelchair and you're, or you're on crutches or recovering for a hip operation or whatever, 
we just need like we, we, we need to start we need to start thinking about people we need to start thinking about our communities we need to start thinking about the people in our communities you know who don't have broadband who don't have mobile phone coverage who may only drive to town once a week or maybe only get a neighbour to drive them to town and they are able to do their business and they, some people when they go to town they have a list of 10 things to do because they might only go once every two weeks and in the pandemic you know people are we're hearing it every night. It's all about restrictions. Mm. And then the bank come on and say, our business is down, our footfall in the bank is down by 70%. But how could it be otherwise? Because people can't go. Yeah. And I know I was reading up on this yesterday. In the UK, the financial services regulator has pressed banks to avoid branch closures during the pandemic. Does the central bank have a role here? Well, I, I wouldn't be able to comment on that. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. They've been, they've been very quiet uh, on it for sure. All right, uh, let us know how you get on anyway. Who? D- just remind us again, who have you written to? I have written to Minister um, Michael, Michael McGrath, McGrath and Minister Sean, Sean Fleming. Okay. Let, let us know when you hear back because at this point in time you don't know what Bank of Ireland's plans are for their buildings. No, Do I, you? No. I, I, I no. Googled them last night and th- th- in fact in the whole announcement I, I just read through different things on the whole announcement. There was no mention no. No. What's, what's going to happen to the building? Yeah I, yeah, I couldn't find out anything either. OK, all right. Listen, Bernard, we leave it there. I no doubt we'll talk again about thanks this. But teacher. thank you for that. And uh, thanks uh, for joining us. That is uh, Councillor Bernard Moynihan. 1850 333 John Paul taking your calls. Texts are continuing to come in. Hi, Patricia. Listening to you earlier about the house parties and street parties in Limerick and how young people think they won't get COVID. Well, we've been in lockdown now on or off for nearly a year. If if these people persist in defying the rules, we'll be in lockdown, lockdown this time next year. We're all doing our part in staying at home, seeing nobody and getting really fed up with it all now. Why can't the guards stop these house parties and let the country get back to some type of normality? The actions of these people is affecting the rest of us law-abiding citizens. And that's a frustration for so many people thanking you. And thank you for your text to 0862 103 103. Court today on C103. With John Cusack Insurance's Kinsale, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie. Now it appears that dry January wasn't a feature in many households this year, with figures showing a 57% year on year increase in drink sales for the first month of the year. Off license sales are a concern for Alcohol Action Ireland, and joining me, their spokesman, you. McKinney. Good morning to you, Ewan. Good morning. Now, bar, I'm very well, thank you. Bars are closed. Some of them are closed now for nearly a full year. Uh, so people mm. will say, sure, of course people are going to the off-licence instead. But are you surprised at the amount of alcohol sold during the month of January? I am. I, I, I think that it's quite surprising and I think it's quite disappointing. I mean, there has been you know, there's been a bit of a, command, a kind of commercial messaging from the alcohol producers, you know, to sort of get on board the idea that perhaps we should all start drinking non-alcoholic products and all that sort of thing. But clearly, that's just not a, a message that's, that's resonating at all. And obviously, the figures that you've outlined, you know, for the four weeks immediately after Christmas are pretty shocking, 57%. And I accept that, obviously... The pubs have been closed, and and if we go back and look at the whole year of COVID, you know we can see consistently, you know we've had 
significant spikes and surges of sales and purchases of alcohol in the in the off trade, including as far as nearly ninety percent back in June and July. And so, you know, what we're witnessing, unfortunately, is that there is a complete shift of all the alcohol use that would have taken place in the licensed premises is now has now poured into our homes. And again, you know, we look at what happened as late as last night. And I think you may have spoke about this on your own program earlier. You know, you can see that the availability and, you know, this is the elephant in the room, the availability of exceptionally affordable alcohol is what's driving our continued excessive use of alcohol. And to remind your listeners, you know, as a nation, we are drinking 40% above what we should be in the context of a low-risk engagement with alcohol. So we have a profound problem, and there are profound reasons why that is a problem. Um, And we can do something about this if we choose to. And the key measure here is minimum unit pricing. Uh, which unfortunately still has not been implemented by the government. And we've heard countless times from people on NEFIT and people, uh, health experts, that COVID's best friend is uh, alcohol. So we know that it is part fueling the uh, pandemic. The the minimum unit pricing, uh, Ewan, Mm. has that worked in other countries? Oh God, yeah, it's very effective. Um, It's it's in about uh, eight or nine uh, states across Europe um, and has been very effective in, in most places. The most recent example and the nearest one to us is in Scotland, uh, whereby they've, they're now in their second year, nearly they're moving into their third year of impl- implementation of MUP. And they've seen a reduction of alcohol use of around four to five percent. But more significantly, what they've seen, and remember, pub, the, the whole point of minimum unit pricing is a public health measure. And what Scotland has seen is a 10% reduction in alcohol-related deaths. And that's the key driver for us as here. And if you go further afield beyond Europe, the most recent state to in, implement minimum unit pricing is the Northern Territory in Australia. And what they saw was that they had a 40% reduction in acute alcohol episodes into their emergency departments. Now, again, if you think about what happened last night and, you know, the level of intoxication potentially that's involved there, how many of those types of episodes are occurring and how many of those individuals are knocking up into our A&E departments on a regular basis? We know that a third of all presentations to A&E on a Friday, Saturday and a Sunday are alcohol related. So again, why is that the case? It is because we have exceptionally affordable alcohol and readily available on every street corner. And when I knew you were joining me on on the programme today, I mean, we've both you and I uh, have discussed minimum unit pricing many, many times before. And I was trying mm-hmm. to think, when did we first start talking about it? And I was shocked <laughs> to see it was it was 2013 was when the government first said that they were going to introduce right. it. Correct, yeah. So, I mean, the government, yeah, the cabinet decision to to proceed with the public health alcohol bill as it was at the time, which contains minimum unit pricing, was in October 2013. That legislation obviously took five years to get through the Oireachtas because of all the opposition by the alcohol producers and the alcohol industry. Eventually, it was enacted in 2018. So now we have a law on the statute books for nearly 900 days at this point and still 
the government refuses to implement minimum unit pricing. And the only reason, they, in my view, in our view, this ministerial action continues to be is because they want to support the alcohol producers who are against the introduction of minimum unit pricing. I mean, this is this is a fundamental public health measure and we have a minister for health and a government who is refusing to implement the law of the land democratically. But don't passed. the government also make a lot of money in taxes from alcohol sales and is that not influencing decisions? Well, it, it, it may do, but the, the actual minimum unit pricing, of course, isn't a tax. What it does do is it obviously drives down a some degree of reduction in relation to consumption over a period of time. And what the study in Ireland in relation to minimum unit pricing suggests that it will reduce alcohol uh, use by 8%. But the, the price the price differential isn't a major factor in terms of the actual clawback in relation to excise duty. There's not a significant change in that respect. What happens is that those, as we know, it's, it's a target on the absolute cheapest, strongest alcohol that's available in the market. So it tries to endeavour to ensure that they cannot be sold at a certain price. Yeah, it gets rid of the yeah. cheap. It gets rid of the cheap drink. Yes, yeah. uh, but the excise duty continues. It, it gets rid of it. Gets rid of the price, the availability of it at a really cheap price. But the excise duty is determined on what the alcohol is in the product, and the government still gets the excise. They still get okay, but the government will uh, consistently say we are waiting for Northern Ireland so that we can introduce this across the entire uh, island of Ireland, and that if we have a different policy in the south to Northern Ireland, we'll just have people doing a beer run uh, over uh, the border. Is that argument starting to wear thin? Well, I, I, I do. I think that has, has, has always worn thin and it has always been our, our, our argument that that is a spurious argument. I mean, I, I, I would suspect that there's very few people in Mallow or Kinturk or, um, you know, anywhere in, in County Cork who would decide to get in the car today and drive to the north so that they could buy a few cans of beer at 10 pence less or 10 cents less than what they can do in their local super value. So... I, I just don't buy the argument. I mean, we know that the, the absolute critical factors in relation to sustaining cross-border trade, and it is obviously it is a notable factor. You know, it's worth about five hundred million a year in Ireland in terms of the cross-border trade. But the key drivers of that are the currency fluctuation. People are very acutely aware of what the currency fluctuation is. And so when when it moves in, in the favour of the euro, yes, you will get some drive in relation to consumption. Uh, the price is differential because of a different VAT regime. So why, why wouldn't the government do something about that? And the other factor is 60% of the cross-border trade is done by people who live on the border. Now, we're not going to move those people you know, in any time soon. This measure of minimum unit pricing is a public health. It's for the common good. It's for everybody who lives in the country. Okay. So, ha- you know, okay. we have to focus on that. Okay. How do you answer this argument coming in from one of our listeners, Heidi, who's, who says, um, I am saddened to hear your speaker, our speaker is Ewan McKinney of Alcohol Action Ireland, say that alcohol here is cheap. I would like to ask him, has he ever looked at prices abroad? France, Italy and Spain, for example, much cheaper than here. Here we go again. Punish the many for the few that cause the problems. I like to have a glass of wine now and uh, again, and I would say there are many more like me. We will all suffer, says Heidi. How do you answer that? Well, I would say to Heidi, with respect, that the affordability of alcohol is self-evident. We do a survey every year in relation to the price. We've spoke about it in the past. 
we know that alcohol is exceptionally affordable. We know that a woman in Ireland can drink her low-risk guidelines of alcohol for less than €5, which is like literally 50% of an hour's minimum wage. So the affordability of alcohol is exceptionally uh, affordable. And the context of people suffering or people being punished, nobody will be suffering and nobody will be penalised for drinking a little less. It's a public health measure. It's about trying to ensure we drink less no one is saying you cannot drink. What we're saying is we want you to drink a little less. John in Carrigaline says, do you realise we are a proud drinking nation? The government didn't close the off licences during any of the lockdowns. Doesn't that say enough? It was deemed as essential. There'll always be money for drink, but no money for food, sadly, in uh, some uh, households. And uh, a couple of other people are saying, ask Ewan McKinney, did, should we have re- at least reduced the hours in our off licence during the pandemic? Yeah. Well, I think we should have done that in the in the beginning. What we should have done is we should have moved to a situation where we restricted the availability and we restricted the level of volume, the volume that people could purchase. We they've done that. They did that in other countries. They did that in Australia. They did that in South Africa. They did it in a lot of other countries, whereby they identified very quickly that alcohol was a problem in relation to the transmission of of the virus, and they moved to restrict the availability by hour and volume, and I think that's what we should have done. I think it's too late to have done that now because I think, as your listeners are identifying, a lot of people are very wedded to the idea of their availability on alcohol, and you know we have to accept that at this point because I think it's just too late as a measure at this point. Yeah, Jenny said, I watched groups of young lads yesterday walk out of an off-licence with slabs of uh, drink. Yeah. It certainly looked like they were going to a house party. Again, I mean, you know, the idea that you can, you know, those those types of slabs of beer, you're you're you know, you're you're driving up the sort of you know twelve liters uh, of of beer, and those standard drinks within those products are available at very little price in terms of seventy, eighty cents a can, and so you know, the idea, this idea again, people are influenced. I accept, and people have to, are correct to say that alcohol is expensive in the context of it in the on trade. So, in a pub and in a restaurant and places where other costs are involved, but the power of your euro transferring into the off trade, into the supermarket, into the convenience store, etc., is multiplied by four or five, and that's the reality. So, it is exceptionally affordable in the context of what the level of what we drink and. So we're spending less money now as a nation, but we're actually drinking the same. So the the, the 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 evidence points to the fact that the affordability of alcohol is actually increasing year by year. OK, all right. We leave it there. Uh, you and no doubt we'll speak about minimum unit pricing again. But in the meantime, Maybe thank you. Uh, <laughs> I wait for that day. You uh, and listen, thanks a million and stay safe. Thanks for joining thank us. Uh, bye bye. That is Ewan McKenna of Alcohol Action uh, Ireland. And uh, a lot of people point into the fact that they never closed at the off licence, thus proving uh, that it's, it is deemed by our government to be essential. But, you know, I go back to the amount of money that is made in an off licence uh, when it comes to taxes 
the government make a lot of money on excise duty out of alcohol and they would lose a lot if all of them uh, were closed. 1850-333-103 John Paul taking your calls you can text her WhatsApp 0862-103-103 We're going to take a break we have news at uh, 11 on the way and in the next hour we're going to what is really a sign of the times with people working remotely it seems some auctioneers are saying that broadband availability is proving to be more important to people buying a house than an engineer's report. Court today on C103 with Sean Cusack Insurance's Kinsale now part of McCarthy Insurance Group for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance cmig.ie Some of your thoughts coming in to us firstly on banking and the decision by Bank of Ireland uh, to close nine of its branches here in uh, Cork. Uh, a text says cashless society is going to be a nightmare for older people but what about children? How are children going to learn how to manage money if we're living in a cashless society? It's this pure disgrace thinking of people that deal with money or have dealt with money all of their lives i.e. mainly older people that many of them don't understand how to use cards or to do online banking. It looks like we're going to have children using cards as well. It will be the the elderly and the children who will most lose out. I feel there's no respect and no consideration for these groups of people. Hi, uh, Patricia Ree Banks. People need to do their business uh, every week or people who go and do their business every week. This texter says, an elderly man, God love him, he was a little bit slow in the post office recently. He was picking up his uh, pension. Could you imagine if he had to lodge money or withdraw money as well? Maybe he might have to set up a direct debit. He went on to buy stamps. He was chatting away, God love him, to the teller. He must have been at the counter for 30 minutes. Could you imagine if you had to add banking in on top of that? It'll simply take forever. Plus, if I have a problem with my bank, for example, I put money into a machine one day, it was €200, but only €150 ended up being lodged. So I was able to call the teller. Uh, What transactions will the post office be able to solve if there's a problem? I don't mind, but I'm sure that there are many who don't like the fact that the workers in the post office will know about their bank account details, especially if that person also has a post office account. I moved to permanent TSB yesterday. Problem solved with Bank of Ireland for the moment. If enough, leave Bank of Ireland. That's one way of being heard. Stop com- just by complaining isn't the way. It's difficult for some uh, to transfer to another bank, but with help they can do it. Money talks. If people stay, then the bank will almost have gotten away with it. That's uh, a WhatsApp in. Thank you for that. Some of your texts in on banking. Some of them in earlier on. Mavis says, my online banking informed me that I needed to download the Bank of Ireland app to my smartphone or to a tablet when I did it. It told me the app was out of date and that it needed updating, but I've been unable to do that. At the moment, I can still get in on the old system, but I'm wondering for how much longer. I I, I don't go to the bank much, but that's due to the pandemic. I stay away. It's a real fiasco and that's why a lot of people haven't been near near a bank this year. It isn't just Bank of Ireland have seen footfall. I think every bank has seen footfall because we've been told to stay at home. Hi Patricia, people should support their local credit union much better than the banks. We've got a fantastic one here in Dunmanway says uh, Pat who says, uh, by the way, love the show. Thank you for that. Also on, is that all the ones on uh, banking? It is. Okay. Then some other issues. Nula Imado says, hi Patricia, I've tried to contact Ryanair but I can't get a reply from them. 
It's in connection with the flight refund, which I requested last March. This is going on now for nearly a year. Does anyone have a contact number for Ryanair? One where somebody will physically answer the phone. Oh, Anula, I'm surprised to hear that you're, you're battling since last March because we were told people who were getting refunds directly from Ryanair Michael O'Leary himself came out and said that they'd all got their money back. We know there was problems with people who had booked a Ryanair flight through a travel agent or through a third party, you know, booking it online with one of the travel agencies online. I know there was an issue with that, but I'm really surprised if you booked directly with Ryanair and you're still waiting. Has anybody recently contacted Ryanair? Did you use a particular telephone number where somebody will actually answer the call if so can you get it on to us so we can get it on to Nula please 1850 Tim oh, this is also on Bank of Ireland I'm living in Yall and we are going to be at a real loss when the bank closes it will close to our detriment uh, does, does not have the future and the economy of the town going forward would they not consider keeping the lobbies the ATM areas of the banks open this would be less costly for the banks to operate and it would give us the customers the opportunity to conduct a lot of financial business particularly in smaller towns it would also eliminate buildings becoming derelict as you discussed earlier on the programme and that is from uh, Tim thank you for that Tim and then on drink and the price of drink and what happened in Limerick last night with the young students out having their street uh, parties Liz says the parents are worse than the students paying all of their bills let them clean up their own own homes, says uh, Liz. Sandy says, some of the people with a drinking problem, I know, avail of home brew. Kits can be bought online. The reason slabs of 24 cans are so popular is because of the high pricing of the smaller quantity packs. They should be banned and cans of same brand sold at price per can. And it should be done across all pack sizes, says Sandy. Well, you're kind of touching on exactly what you and McKinney was talking about. Minimum unit pricing would do exactly that. It wouldn't allow for slabs of beer to be sold at a reduced uh, price. That's exactly what minimum unit pricing is all about and it would cut down on the amount of alcohol that people would buy. It wouldn't be banning alcohol but it would certainly cut cut down on the amount that people are um, drinking. Okay, some of your WhatsApps in. Does Ewan McKinney of Alcohol Action Ireland live in a perfect world? People's mental health is on the floor. It's no wonder that people are drinking. Give us a proper plan for getting out of lockdown and give people something to look forward to. Everybody talks about mental health, yet very little consideration has been given to it. Oh, and to be able to drive to the coast and just sit and look at the ocean. But all we get from the locals is, don't come down here. We don't want you. Nobody cares about anybody else. Everybody's just looking after themselves. Uh, And then all we have is the government barking out their orders to stay at home. We're we're turning into a nanny state, says uh, Claire, who is obviously getting very, very frustrated about the five kilometre uh, rule. Hi Patricia that man speaking about cheap alcohol Ewan McKenna there is no cheap alcohol here in this country and he's trying to punish us who are obeying the rules I like to have my wine or maybe a little Guinness at the weekend the reason people are spending more money on drink is because the pubs are closed and the outdoor parties are going on every anyway and every way. Every Friday and Saturday night I see them in a local park. And hi Patricia, why did, why is Ewan McKinney so surprised that the the increase in drinks sold 
from off-licences was up by 57% year-on-year for the month of January. The government told people the pubs were closed. What do they expect? People to sit at home and suck their thumb? says a uh, texter. And someone in McCroom says, Patricia, with regards to students breaking the law in uh, Limerick, would it not be safer now to open beauty salons and hairdressers where the germs are basically nil as they're so well equipped to deal with it and they did so well when they opened the last time. Not like those young, selfish, rotten young people, I won't say. Uh, Of course, it's the government's fault again. They will not close the off-licences. McCroom, at the top of the golf links, it's covered with empty cans and bottles and burnt out after bonfires. So it's not just students that are hiding behind uh, trees. There is a lot of drinking going on in a lot of different areas. 1850-333-103. I think that's all of the comments in for now. Can I just update you on um, vaccines? Um, Because Stephen Donnelly has said that the vast majority of people over the age of 85 would have received their vaccine by the end of this week. And I'm hoping that all of our listeners aged 85 and over, or if you have a family member aged 85 or over, I really hope that they've had their vaccine or due to get their vaccine this week. But they seem to be that they are on target. I know there was a problem with some GPs not getting their orders on time. And I know some GPs were given out that they were only getting 48 hours notice of deliveries. And then it was the big scramble to get on to the older patients to get them in. But it is looking like that by the end of this week the vast, vast majority of those over 85 and I know they've already started to give the vaccines to people between 80 and uh, 85 and then we had the worry and a couple of our listeners contacted us about loved ones who were housebound well, Stephen Donnelly spoke about this uh, yesterday and they are aware of housebound patients over the age of 85 and over the age of 70 who have yet to have not been vaccinated. It seems the HSE is due to implement special measures such as a GP home visit and seeming the ambulance service will also be involved. So that certainly is good news for any of the listeners who contacted us last week about a housebound relative and their GP didn't know what to do with them. So it looks like the HSE is trying to get a plan going on that. And then the National Immunisation Advisory Committee NIAC, they're the ones who decide who gets the vaccine next. They're conducting a rolling review of the priority list. We know they came up with a new priority list last week but they're working on it on a rolling uh, basis and Stephen Donnelly has suggested the review could see key workers such as teachers moved up the list. Minister Donnelly said what they're now looking at is the next grouping and they are accepting that the next grouping is going to be very large because included in the next grouping is a number of key workers and Stephen Donnelly yesterday said family carers. He said a lot of people have been advocating on behalf of family carers. So he said one of the things that NIAC is now looking at are this group of key uh, workers including those who are uh, supporting healthcare, the vaccination programme, but also essential activities. And he is including essential activities like education and, he said, indeed caring. So there could be some welcome news there. Let's see what Nyack has to say about family carers. And then the really good news story on vaccines is the one-shot Johnson & Johnson COVID jab. That could be cleared for rollout in this country in as little as eight days. The European Medicines Agency has said a decision is now due 
on the 11th of March and if given the go-ahead then it will be the fourth vaccination that will be available in Ireland but the good news with Johnson & Johnson is 2.2 million doses of what is seen as an easy to handle vaccine has been ordered by the Irish government. It only needs to be refrigerated not frozen and it makes widespread availability much easier and GPs would be able to do home a home visit with one of the Johnson & Johnson uh, vaccines. Now, EU regulators have brought forward the vaccine review because obviously they're coming under increasing pressure over the slow pace of vaccination approvals across uh, Europe. So the vaccine, has the Johnson & Johnson one, it was recently approved of for use in the US and the European Medicine Agency, they had previously said the decision on this particular vaccine was possible, but they were looking at sometime towards the middle of uh, the month but the Taoiseach, Michal Martin, was then saying if that would happen, the first doses wouldn't arrive in this country until April. But now, uh, the European Medicines Board approval, they've decided to fast track it. And uh, it'll be, if and if they do fast track it, and if they do make their decision on the 11th of March, it means that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine would be in this country by the end of the month. In a statement yesterday, the EMA said it has arranged an extraordinary meeting with the vaccine makers to conclude the evaluation and if the evaluation is possible. But I think a lot of people, when they saw that America gave the go-ahead, that was kind of the indicator that the EMA would be doing the same thing because obviously they're all asking the same questions and they're all getting the same uh, answers because in this country up to last Saturday, uh, we still hadn't reached the half a million mark for vaccines because at 436,000 and we look across the water last Saturday in the United Kingdom they had hit the, the 20 million mark for uh, vaccines so the Johnson & Johnson one certainly will make a big it'll be the game changer that we'd hope the AstraZeneca one would be actually and the AstraZeneca one as well you wonder will the Irish Medicines Agency uh, look at that uh, again the decision was taken not to give it to over 65s but some of the research that is coming back of the real live trials you know the trials that are been they're not even trials anymore they're in real time people for example in England the amount of people in the UK that have been given the AstraZeneca and they're showing the efficacy after the first shot is even higher than the efficacy for the Pfizer vaccine and they're showing it is particularly efficacious in the over 65s so I'm wondering and I know some of the other European countries are changing their mind and deciding that they are going to roll it out to over 65 year olds because that could become another game changer which means we'd have two vaccines in this country that would be real game changers if we allowed for the Oxford to be given to the over 65s along with the Johnson and uh, Johnson. So we await March the 11th for the nod for the European Medicines uh, Agency to give the approval and then for those vaccines to arrive on our shores. C103 Jobs. Crystal Earth in Mallow. They're looking for an admin assistant. It's to help with stock control and website admin. Clonakilty Park Hotel, they're looking for a senior bar person. Why a ground worker and 360 machine driver is wanted for the Middleton area and an Arctic truck driver that's needed for work in Newmarket. You'll find all the details and more job opportunities by going online now. Just go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more. This is C103. Court today on C103. With Sean Cusack Insurance's Kinsale, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. Want great advice? You know who to talk to. cmig.ie. You're listening to Court today on replay. Phone and text lines are currently closed. 
Now, according to some auctioneers, broadband has become an even bigger priority than an engineering report when it comes to house buying as COVID-19 turns the property market on its head. To chat further, I'm joined by Michael Barry of Dick Barry and Son Auctioneers in Formoy. Good morning to you, Michael. Morning, Patricia. You're welcome to the programme. Now, when a client comes to you, is broadband nearly one of the first questions they'll ask you about? Well, it's a very um, important um it's a very important service, yes. Um, I need the house viewing. It's one of the first questions that I ask is the broadband um, available, you know. So if you were selling a house in an area with good broadband, could that actually increase the price of the property? It certainly could, yes. And more particularly if the people are working from home, it would be a crucial um, service to have at that stage, you know. So definitely it has an effect on the price. And of course, bad broadband, we're mainly talking about rural areas. Is it therefore slowing up the sale of houses in rural areas? It's certainly not helping anywhere, Patricia. The, um, as an example, the other last week I rented a house locally and the guy um, was very pleased to take the house. But when he went and um, checked out the efficiency of the broadband, he came back and changed his mind, you know. So obviously he lost the customer because the broadband speed wasn't efficient enough, you know. Yeah, and it isn't that broadband anymore is a luxury or it's for your hobby or your pastime. So many people are working from home. It was a necessity for that particular client and it was the main reason that he didn't take the property. The only reason really, you know. And what is the housing market like like at the moment? Is there much availability? The housing market is very strong, but the problem is that demand is, is outstripping the supply, you know. And um, uh, there are far more customers and properties available at the present time. Now, obviously, the, the restrictions are holding us up with viewings and um, it's slowing down the process somewhat at the moment. But um, it's typical, like, I mean, I have a particular property in Connor and there are 14 or 15 people waiting to view it once the restrictions are lifted, you know. So and you, can, you can't do yeah. any viewings at the moment? You can't do house viewings at the moment, no, not for the last two months. Could you do a virtual one online, no? You could do a virtual, but there'll be nobody by a property with a no, virtual tour. Absolutely. And only yesterday I had the Construction Industry Federation uh, on our, uh, and they're calling for construction to go back. And I actually asked them about house bills and how it's, uh, because there's no new house building going on either. Yeah, but going forward, I think that's going to change a bit, Patricia. My um, the indications to us are um, there's more inquiries about development land and I think there's more of an appetite for builders and developers to um, stop looking at uh, building new houses again. So that would be positive news for everyone if that happens, you know. But there are certainly more inquiries for development land locally, you know. And because of the pandemic with remote working, and we're, you know, we're hearing that when the pandemic is over, that more employers will start offering remote learning. Do, do you think you we will see... A, people wanting to get out of the rat race of living in cities and big urban areas, will we see more wanting to move to rural areas? I think that's already starting to happen, but there's other issues then that's going to affect that, like planning permission, like um, the planning uh, uh, regulations are very restricted in the country, so um, basically you nearly have to be a first-time buyer living in the area to get planning permission. So if a person wants to move out of a town or a city, in most cases they'll have to buy a second-hand house and I think that's going to make the second-hand houses properties, particularly the um, good quality detached houses, more expensive because of the restrictions that the planning laws have. Now, uh, in, in relation to the planning laws, that's just not county Cork, it's, it's the whole country. And the policy seems to be to push everybody back into towns and villages. So getting um, planning permission out of the country 
is uh, nearly impossible at this stage, you know. Well, there is, isn't there that law that you have to have some connection with the area and have lived there for the last seven years? Is that still in place? That's still in place. They call it here tree planning. And you see, if you already, if you have an existing house or been a, a, a house owner previously, you're 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 um, you're you're beaten straight away. You have to be literally a first-time buyer or have a housing need. So I mean, good quality houses out the country, detached houses, I think are going to become more expensive for that reason. If people want to move to the country and buy a good quality house, they'll have to buy a second-hand one, which will obviously, I think impact on the price and push it up further. Yeah, yeah. You wonder though as we come out of the pandemic, I mean the world is going to be very different I think after the pandemic. Do you think this is something the government might take a look at? Certainly they will. I think, I mean, it's it's very hard for first time buyers to get on on the property ladder and that has always been the case but I mean if they're renting properties at the moment, property uh, the rents are historically very uh, as high as they've ever been paying 12 and 1300 a month for a three-bedroom semi. And while the mortgage repayments on the same house might only be eight or 900 And we see regularly people come back to live with parents to, in order to save um, save money to get the deposit to get a mortgage. So, I mean, it's never easy to get on the property ladder for first-time buyers. But um, the only good thing that I see happening is that, that the government have brought out um, a new mortgage subsidy for first-time buyers, and that's proving to be very helpful for helpful for them. But um, it's never easy and uh, never has been easy for people to to get on the property ladder. And sometimes it's with the help of parents that they're able to buy their first house, you know. Yeah, and I know there was an issue with some people drawing down a mortgage if they'd been on a pandemic payment, which seemed really, really unfair on people who were on a pandemic payment through no fault of their own. Yeah, we came across that quite a bit there over the last few months that the people weren't able to draw down the money. And unfortunately, the sales fell through because... The, um, People selling the house weren't able to wait around until such time as they were able to get the money from the bank, you know. So that had a bearing on some sales as well. And there were a lot of disappointed um, first-time buyers and mortgage people that couldn't get their mortgages because of it, you know. Yeah, yeah. you'd feel sorry for for young couples trying to get onto uh, that property market. And then the rental market, Michael, is that as tricky as ever? The rental market, yeah. First of all, there again, the supply, the demand, the demand is far um, outstripping the supply in that regard as well. But um, I mean, if you put up a house to rent on Dafter, I mean, you you could have anything like thirty or forty inquiries within a matter of days about it, and obviously only one person can get it. But the rents then are are, are are so high, you know. I mean, you're talking about three bedroom semi making twelve to thirteen hundred oh. euros a, a month, and the repayment mortgage repayments. On the same property would only be eight or nine, but the difficulty is to see the people can't get the mortgages. And then it's, it's a catch-22 situation. If they're paying that big kind of rent, then they can't afford to, to save to get the mortgage. So it's kind of Murphy's Law, as such, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're going around in circles. All right, uh, listen, uh, Michael, thank you for that. And thanks for joining us on the programme this morning. Thank you, Patricia. Good morning to you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That is uh, Michael Barry of Dick Barry and Son Auctioneers. They are based in Formoy. But isn't it, did we ever see the day where somebody would ring up an auctioneer to buy a house and the first thing they'd ask for is they got good broadband before they'd even go to look at an engineer's report. It's just... uh, 
the times in which we're, we are living in. But I do think we're going to have a very changed world when we come out of the pandemic. And hopefully the plus will be that more people will decide to live in rural areas. And that's just going to be a win-win for the local economy. And it'll put children back into schools and it might allow for schools to remain open and an extra class and another teacher. And the rural post offices that we've already touched on uh, this morning, it'll put businesses in there. And maybe it'll put businesses into banks and banks might reconsider staying open in a particular area. Just on banks, Michael in Castletown may raises a good point about Bank of Ireland when we spoke about earlier on with Councillor Bernard Moynihan who has written to the ministers to suggest that the Bank of Ireland would and that the government would, would intervene in, in, in some way to help out in the cost of it, that if a post office is too small in an area where a bank branch is closing, that they would offer that the post office would move into the bank instead. Michael makes a good point. He, he says, I'd like to know how many of the Bank of Ireland buildings are actually owned by Bank of Ireland. Like he says, AIB, for example, he knows that some of their buildings in small rural towns and rural areas are actually leased. They're not owned by the, at the banks. Yeah, I, I have no idea. I mean, I certainly some of the older Bank of Ireland buildings that remember we mentioned earlier that the the bank manager and their family would live upstairs. They were definitely they had been in under the care of Bank of Ireland. There are definitely buildings that were owned by Bank of Ireland because they've been there uh, for so long. I imagine the least ones are probably the newer ones, Michael, but I don't know. The one thing I can't find out and Bernard Moynihan said he tried to look as well. There's been no mention from Bank of Ireland as to what they're going to do with their buildings or not. So I don't know. So I so I can't because I don't know what the plan is for it. I don't know how many they physically own. Maybe we might send an email off to Bank of Ireland just to see what is their thought pattern and what are their ideas on the buildings and how many do they actually own and how many are leased. Because I think what people are fearful of because the banks in the main, the ones that they're deciding to close are on a main street, that if they're left vacant next to maybe shops that are already vacant. We all know there isn't a town in Ireland that doesn't have boarded up vacant buildings and if they're left there for very long they end up become derelict and it's just, it's so tough on the economy of the whole of the town and it's so tricky and difficult on the other businesses who are trying to do business while being right beside a building that's boarded up or gone derelict. I always feel for business owners that find themselves in that position so I just want something done if because they're great big buildings. A lot of those banks Bank of Ireland are big, big buildings that I would just love to see something done with them so that they're not left vacant and then possibly could go uh, derelict. Uh, Patricia, hi, this is Peter and Bandon. I was asked to do internet banking while in the in the bank and I said, OK, if I'm doing all of the paperwork and I'm doing all of the internet banking, do I get a cut in my service charges? Guess what? All I got was a dirty look. Peter reckons bankers are just greedy. He's not a bit impressed about being asked to do all of his banking online. And then a couple of queries in. Someone says, isn't it ridiculous that garden centres are not open while supermarkets are allowed to be packed with bedding plants, etc. I was only thinking of that the other day, even though I thought I saw on Facebook somebody saying that a garden centre was open 
and we're at the time of the year with more and more people out in the garden and the weather's been so sweet this week and long may it continue and people want to go out and buy their bits and pieces and their bedding plants and I know later on today we'll have Peter Dowdle joining us on the programme and I might put that your very question to uh, Peter as to what is what are the indications and how tough is it for garden centres because I'm assuming they're all ready to go with the summer bedding plants and this is the, the time that they would be you know getting incredibly busy and it's going to be really really hard if they're not allowed to open for another month, maybe two months. So we'll see if we can find out more on that. And John wants to know, is it just him or has anybody else noticed that the price of, is this diesel or petrol, is gone mental? My garage, I don't know, he doesn't say in his text if it's petrol or diesel, but he said, my local garage, 142 per litre. This time last year, John is obviously somebody who tracks petrol and diesel prices. John says this time last year it was 115 per litre and now it's 142 per litre a year on. As I say, I don't know if it's petrol or diesel. Has anybody else noticed that? And I can't join in in this conversation because I was only thinking the other day, I filled up my car with, I drive a diesel car, I filled up my car with diesel and you know something, it must be about a month ago and I was looking at it, I said, God, I haven't been in the garage for ages. I'm still, I think, over halfway full on my tank. And that's just because I drive the very short distance to work and then I go to my big shop once a week. That's a very short distance away. And that's it. The car is, is parked up. So I'm certainly not buying anything like the pet- the diesel I would normally be buying. So I haven't a clue how much diesel is in the garage where I buy mine at the moment. But anyway, anybody else noticing that, the petrol and diesel uh, prices, John's very words are, the price has gone mental. 1850-333-103. John Paul takes your calls, text or WhatsApp 0862-103-103. Court today on C103. With John Cusack Insurance's Kinsale, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie. Now, only yesterday we were discussing Ireland famine with my chat with Terry Carney of the Skibbereen Heritage Centre and how it destroyed thousands of families in this country in the 1800s. 1800s. Sadly, global hunger is still a crisis in other countries. And North Cork nurse and humanitarian Pat McMahon is hoping to raise money on International Women's Day, which is of course next Monday, for a charity he runs in India. And Pat McMahon from... Meelan joins me. Good morning to you, Pat. Uh, good morning, Patricia. And you're welcome to the programme. We've spoken with you many, many times. Normally you join us live in studio, but obviously with COVID restrictions, that is not possible. So I suppose start by reminding uh, listeners about how and why you set up your charity, Mothers First, in Varanasi in India, and it was back in 2004. Yeah, thanks, Patricia. Yeah, I, I was uh, backpacking around the world and I... <laughs> I was. I ended up in India, and I got lost in a slum area. I found a child, literally dying of malnutrition, called Tisa. And um, I think my, as my my training as a nurse, I knew that she was critically ill. So within about an hour, I'd found a private, a small private children's hospital to admit her. And um, and uh, basically, we started the project from there. We, we ended up renting 10 beds uh, for almost 10 years um, and created a malnutrition unit. And uh, thankfully, Tisa survived and we kind of followed up with her for, for a good few years. So that was the, that, that was the start of, 
my humanitarian journey. And you've saved many, many lives over those years, you and your team, Pat. Yeah, well, you know, we really have. We've, we've treated thousands of women and children for severe malnutrition. And, um, you know, I suppose, as your introduction there, our own, our own famine past and, and hunger, where over a million people died in Ireland and another million had to emigrate. And sadly, that, that reality is still happening now in this world. Um, global hunger is on the rise for the past five years. And um, particularly COVID-19 has had a huge impact on, on, on food security um, in the world. So I suppose the walk is certainly to raise funds for, for our project, but also to, to, um, to bring to light this global humanitarian crisis that's happening right now. Yeah, tell me about your plans uh, for the walk n- next uh, Monday. You're doing it on International uh, w- Women's Day and you're, w- you're going to wear a suit. I saw this lovely picture of you on the paper wearing a suit but walking barefoot. Just talk to me about the symbolism of all of that. I think the, 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 the walking barefoot is, is the symbolism, symbolism of, uh, of hardship um, and the suit and tie, which so many people um, on a physical level are experiencing in our world. And the suit and tie, because it's such a serious issue that, that is not getting, we believe, the, the media coverage, either in Ireland or internationally. Um, so it, it's such an important issue that, that we need to discuss. And you've had to, because of the COVID restrictions, you've had to change your route. Yeah, originally we, we had the route planned from to commemorate the, a walk between Tracton and Kinsale, where on the 22nd of June 1850, 124 residents of Tracton walked to, to the eight-mile road to uh, Kinsale Workhouse. Mm. So if you can imagine that, imagine 124 people of a village deciding to walk eight miles um, because they were hungry. So we're commemorating those people and all the people in our land and in the world that, that have died of, are, of hunger. And you, instead now you'll do it around Mweelan? Yeah, so instead we're doing, it's actually the, the only circular route they're doing is about 15 kilometres, okay. so we're adding a couple of more kilometres to the, to the journey. Okay, well, well done. And what's, what is the situation in Varanasi in India at the moment? It's very difficult. Like during COVID, last year, we nearly doubled the amount of women um, that were on our programme purely because food, people couldn't afford food. You know, we're privileged here in, in Ireland to, to have the social welfare system that we do. Um, but in so many countries in the world, that isn't the case. Um, you know, and I remember last year when we were talking about whether it was May or June when we were talking about would we be able to go on our international holidays. Um, and that same week, UNICEF came out with figures saying that 10,000 additional children were dying of malnutrition every month due to the economic effects of lockdown. So we're living in very, very different worlds. And the world at the focus at the moment is on COVID and that's that's very understandable. But 
we can't forget that people are dying of hunger. And and like a hundred, imagine one hundred and thirty-five million people in the because of COVID have been pushed into extreme hunger. Now, extreme hunger means that people regularly go days or days, days or days without eating anything, um, and that's additional to what was before. So I think you know I think we need to kind of stand in solidarity with the people that are um, the furthest behind. You know, my mother, she was always saying to me when we were growing up, there's always somebody worse off than yourself. And I, I think we need to look at that bigger picture um, in the world today. And we need to look after people in third world countries when it comes to the vaccine. I know the World Health Organization constantly saying we're not all safe until we're all safe. So, when you know, while we all are pushing for the vaccines here, third world countries need to get their vaccines as well. You know, like the reality what's going to happen is that the, the least vulnerable in Western countries will get the vaccines before the most vulnerable in developing countries. Um, and, you, you know, it's it's hard to call, absolutely. Um, but I think at least um, we should we should be funding humanitarian programs that are at least delivering food to these people. Like we're we're not, there's there's a humanitarian call out for for funds that's not been answered. So, um, you know, it's a very complicated issue. It's, it is a complicated issue, but hunger isn't actually and. And it comes down to money. So I suppose, and, you know, as a small organisation, it's the same for us. You know, we're struggling for, for funds right now. Like, we have 100 women, malnourished pregnant mothers, that are waiting to come on the programme. But we've only a couple of months of funding left. So we can't, we have 134 women on the programme now. And we need to be able to con- finish out the, the programme with them. So I suppose... For us, while we're talking about the, the bigger issue, and it's certainly that's the impetus behind the walk, um, I suppose we're looking for people's support as well. Um, you know, for €10, Euro, uh, we can deliver a food intervention using local foods and medicine um, to malnourished pregnant mothers. And what that does is, you know, it's actually not the mother that you're targeting. It's their, their unborn child because the food that you give directly goes to increasing their birth weight. And, you know, we continue the, the intervention for in, food intervention for three to four months uh, after delivery. And like these are women that are malnourished, maybe 35, 37 kilograms in weight um, and pregnant. Like it's, you know, and, you know, the reason that we're doing the walk on on. International Women's Day is that sixty percent of the people that are hungry in our world are are women, and you know it's not only that. I can go into villages and you can see that, that you can see that you can actually see hunger in women. You know, with your eye, I can go. I've gone into villages and do the full assessment of of the village needs based only on meeting uh, mothers um, because you know if mothers are malnourished that trickles down to to their children and that intergenerational cycle so I suppose we we are appealing for 
performed. And how day. can people donate to your walk and ultimately to your work, Pat? So we have a website, motherforce.net, um, so people can donate online. Um, people can also de- text mother to 5300 and that will that will donate four euro to our project. Um, and we have no administration costs in Ireland. Um, everything we do here in Ireland is is voluntary. So you can be sure that that you know any donations we receive will go directly to buy food. Well done, medicine. well done. You've you've been doing incredible work uh, since two thousand and four. When were you last in in India, Pat? Um, I just came back the end of January, just before everything locked down. Okay. Before we, yeah. Okay. All right, and it'll be a long while until you're back, until you're back there. I think it'll be a while. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, and I know your heart is always there. You're you're a terrific yeah, guy. Listen, uh, good luck with the walk on uh, Monday, and when all this madness is is over, and we're having guests back in studio, we look forward to having you back in studio no, for for a that. chat. But yeah. uh, you look after yourself and stay safe, okay? Yeah, you too. Take, Take care. Bye bye. That is Pat uh, McMahon of Mwilin. He's just one of those terrific guys, and the work that he quietly does, and it's just a small little organisation where that is making a huge, huge uh, impact. We wish him luck with his walk. Mother's First, the name of his charity. You're listening to Cork Today on Replay. Phone and text lines are currently closed. Lots of texts uh, coming in uh, to us. Somebody said, I got a letter this morning from AIB to say they're closing their Patrick Street branch in Cork and my account got moved to the South Mall. Okay, I haven't heard of that one uh, before. And then somebody else was on. They've got an account with Ulster Bank. I'm wondering, what am I to do with my account in Ulster Bank? Well, Ulster Bank are talking of closing. They haven't given a definitive date on if and when it's going to happen. So we got on to Ulster Bank and asked them what your customers need to do and they say nothing. There is no immediate impact on, on your products and your day-to-day banking. Simply continue to bank with us as normal. We commit to keeping you updated and assured that we will provide advance notice of any changes to your future banking services as a result of this decision. So at the moment they are still open but for how long more how long is a piece of string? I don't, I don't really know. Uh, when we mentioned about rural areas and the effect closing down banks has on rural areas and then we spoke with an auctioneer who was talking about people now want to move to rural areas but the first thing they're going to ask is have you good broadband? Uh, Heidi says Patricia it could be so good if more people did choose to live in rural areas in Ireland and build new homes but the problem with building new homes is Heidi planning laws in some cases they are draconian they need to be changed we need more people in rural areas maybe then we wouldn't always be put on the long finger and I think yeah I think that's I, I that's 100% what I have been saying about rural areas. If we put more people into rural areas, it'll keep services going, uh, etc. OK, on petrol prices, when somebody is saying petrol prices seem to have gone uh, nuts, I actually sent this message to you on Monday. Sorry, I wasn't have got around to it. It was obviously a, a busy day on a Monday. But the text was, my Patricia, why petrol and diesel rocketing in price? Petrol 141 and diesel 1301. Yet the price of a barrel of oil oil has hardly changed and the minute I mentioned petrol prices I saw the phone lines light up and poor old John Paul got 
swamped with so many calls. Some of the calls he took included Mike in Blarney to say diesel has gone outrageous. 142 at a diesel station he saw yesterday. It's going to go above petrol soon and diesel is always below a petrol. Shauna Mitchellstown says it was 121 last Tuesday and a matter of a week it's gone to 131. When I asked they said it was a VAT rate increase. Oh okay. Did VAT go up on the price of petrol? I don't know. And diesel, 1850-333-103. And the listener, Nula, in Mallow was having the problem with Ryanair and trying to get a refund from Ryanair. There was a slew of calls following me mentioning Nula's problem as well. Margaret in Newcastle West was on to say she rang Ryanair, but it was the Dublin office that she rang. Now, she did have to press one for this and two for that. You do have to be a little bit patient and hold on. But she did finally get through to somebody who she described as a really nice girl who helped her out Margaret as best she she could and although like what she said on your I didn't go direct with like or like what I said um, Margaret didn't book directly with Ryanair it was through somebody else that she booked the flight and because of that there's uh, unfortunately a, a hold up so I take it Margaret hasn't had a refund yet but they're, they're double numbers for Ryanair 812-1212 but you'll physically get to speak to somebody but you will to, might have to press a number of numbers first and you will have to be a little bit uh, patient Kenneth in Charleville says I had the very same problem with Ryanair on a booking I made last March after nine months I did finally get to speak to somebody but it wasn't over the phone it was via an online chat however I also booked via another online website and not directly with Ryanair. Ryanair said at the time, remember when Michael O'Leary came out a few weeks ago and said everyone had been refunded. Everyone had been refunded who had gone directly through Ryanair. But people who booked either at a travel agency or on a website, they were the ones that had to wait. But some good news for Kenneth and he said last week, nearly a year later, he received his refund from the online website he booked uh, with. But it came from the online website, not from Ryanair. But in fairness to travel agencies and to some of those online websites, they were waiting for the money to be refunded to them. I mean, we heard of travel agents who used their own credit card to book the flights with Ryanair and then Ryanair were not refunding them. They were refunding the customers that dealt directly with them first. So it was, and it still is a very unfortunate situation. And those travel agencies don't have additional cash they don't have cash coming in in order to pay out the money they've already paid on their credit cards so they're waiting on uh, Ryanair uh, for it John in Bandon this is on minimum unit pricing and the price of alcohol in this country people are missing the whole point we can get we got six bottles of really good wine in France a few years ago and the cost for the six bottles was 30 euro but our government won't do that because they don't want to lose out money to the exchequer that is why they why they don't do anything when it comes to the price of drink. We should also educate people on the dangers of drink to our health, show more about liver disease etc and how many people are dying from uh, alcohol and when we try to compare like with like and the amount of people that say that oh you know when you go on the continent drink is so much cheaper and drink is so much cheaper because they have much less excise duty and VAT and taxes added to their alcohol it's a little bit like our petrol prices in this country. The amount on every litre of petrol and diesel and the same with every litre of wine you buy or every bottle of beer you buy. The amount of that that goes to the exchequer goes straight in taxes is way higher than it is in so many other countries. So you can't always blame 
that the bar that's selling the alcohol, you can't always blame the off licence that's selling the alcohol. So much of the money ends up going to the government. Okay, can you keep your gardening questions coming in, please? Because I can see a number coming in. That's great. Hi, Patricia. Petrol in my local uh, garage, 143.9. Yeah, everybody, is, yeah, it's everywhere. There's, there isn't even a case of, well, you can't drive around to shop around because you're not, you can't go outside your 5K either. So you are caught with not being able to shop around as we're always telling people to do when it comes to petrol is to try and buy it as try and get it where you see the price down. But that's not possible when you've got to stay within your 5K. Theresa McCroom is saying, Patricia, can anybody tell us what is the present position about the work that was due to begin at the Briary Gap Theatre in McCroom? It was due to be done ages ago. It's now a derelict building. It's actually an eyesore in the middle of the town. When you're talking about derelict buildings earlier, that's Theresa in McCroom. I know John Paul is getting me the latest update on that. And if I get it before the close of the programme, uh, Theresa, I certainly will bring it to you. Also, why is the, this is Tim, why is the road from Torelton left in such an awful state with very, very deep potholes? We don't neglect to pay our road tax, says Tim. It is an absolute disgrace and that infuriates people if they have to drive on a road you know, constantly, every single day. And if it's full of potholes, you know, you, how often have we heard that? People say, oh, I pay my road tax. Where is the money going? Why are we having certain roads in such an awful state? And then on the lockdown, Stephen Amalo says, why will the government not open up the counties that have low infection rates instead of keeping everything shut down? Surely that would get the economy back up and running again. And obviously, if they did decide to go down that route, we're obviously here in Cork, along with our neighbours across in Kerry. We obviously have much lower rates than, say, Dublin or even one of our other near neighbours at Limerick. The idea would be that you'd have regional lockdowns, which does work in other in other countries but the problem with regional lockdowns is the is the border the county border what would you would you have the county border being policed I mean you could imagine for example if they decided to do that and I can see Stephen why you would want that to happen but say for example in the morning they decided that Cork and Kerry numbers were relatively low little or no and other parts of Kerry for example where there's no they reckon there's no COVID at all no COVID has been recorded for the last uh, two weeks and they decided to open up both of the counties and said you know okay life can get back to reasonable normality in Cork and in Kerry who's going to police all of the county bounds to make sure that people from neighbouring counties that may have higher COVID-19 rates and obviously would have if they were still under lockdown. What's, who's going to stop those people coming in and then would they just be bringing COVID in with them? There would be huge, huge uh, nightmare to police. I don't know how it would actually work but yeah, I, I can see why you would want to do that. I think if we get back on track and we come out of this lockdown and please God it will be our last lockdown I think what we probably will start to see is what they do in other countries, what they call the circuit break lockdown in certain areas. I know, for example, Auckland in New Zealand on one case on Saturday and they've shut down that entire city of Auckland for seven days. Everything is grinded to a halt. You know, the schools are off. Nobody's going to work. Everybody's working from home. Only essential shops are open, etc. Hairdressers, gyms, everything is closed. A little bit like what we have here, but they're doing it for seven days and that's why they track down one particular case and make sure that it hasn't spread. 
and I'm assuming will we eventually get to that situation where if there's an outbreak in Dublin for example that it's just Dublin goes into lockdown and the rest of the country will stay as normal but we, we are a bit off that actually happening and then if a more listener says uh, Patricia do you, do you know what the covert count cases is in Formoy Town? The reason I'm asking is I do a lot of driving in Formoy and what I see every day is not good at all. People are calling into people's houses. People don't seem to be wearing masks when they're on the street chatting to each other. Teenagers are hanging around in big groups. None of them are wearing masks. People do not seem to be sticking to the guidelines and it drives me mad, says this texter. The amount of people going in and out of different houses, it is uh, frightening. I, well, I know we will have the update figure tomorrow it's Thursday evening they come out and then John Paul normally goes through them on Friday they were very low across all of the local electoral areas last week including Formoy but remember the figures that we give out and that come out on a Thursday evening are not for individual towns when, I, when we say Formoy it's Formoy local electoral area which is a big big area I mean it includes Mitchellstown and all the other towns and townslands and villages in between it's a big big area so you can't pinpoint they never come out and say you know that particular town has that many cases but they were certainly all very low uh, last week and we're expecting them to be lower again this week because for example there was one day this week for the whole of Cork City and County there was only 12 cases recorded so the figures are pretty low at the moment and long long may that last Hi uh, Patricia this is a lengthy text. Let me make sure the screen doesn't move on me. Can people not think a little bit logically, please? The progress, the retraction of COVID can't be forecast by the government and vaccines I feel are a joke when they do not cover the new variants. Every variant is really the potential to be another Wuhan on our doorstep unless we all behave with all of the restrictions in place. Big Pharma will do well but will do no good to get rid of COVID-19 if it keeps circulating and more variants then keep being developed or am I missing something because every variant is another potential unstoppable virus all over again look how quickly we got the UK variant and it's rampant and has taken over there seems to be no joined up thinking and logic reasoning and action seems to be gone out the door says a uh, listener 1850 John Paul continuing to take your calls and we are in particular please looking for your gardening questions for Peter you can get those into us or you can text our WhatsApp 0862 103 103 The C103 Cork Diary With Cork County Council's Community Support Programme If you or anyone you know needs help in accessing non-emergency and non-medical supports or advice see corkcoco.ie World Wildlife Day takes place today and Cork Nature Network are inviting people to join Professor John Quinn from UCC via Zoom where he'll be giving some fascinating insights into the lives of birds. It is a free event and you register for the event by logging on to eventbrite.ie. And Cork Educational Training Board, they are running free online workshops to support parents and guardians of three to five-year-olds. There's one happening tomorrow, Thursday, from 7pm to 8.30. The course will cover pre-reading, writing, building, maths, 
social and fundamental movement skills, as well as tips on managing screen time and fun activities for the little ones. If you'd like to register for the course, you can contact the Cork Educational Training Board on 086 823 9094. Cork today on C103. With Sean Cusack Insurance's Kinsale, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. Want great advice? You know who to talk to. CMIG.ie. And somebody is on St. Patricia. Could you give me the number, please, again for Ryanair? We didn't catch it. You called it out too fast. Okay, I will give it out to you now. And Nula is back, who kicked off this discussion about Ryanair. And I'm really surprised to read this. Nuda says, I booked directly with Ryanair. Thanks for your help. I will try the number one of your listeners uh, provided. OK, really shocked to hear that, Nula. I thought everyone who booked directly with Ryanair had already had their refunds already. Nula is proving. Keep in contact with this Nula and let us know how you got on. OK, for everybody else, because I read it out too quickly, it's 01, it's a Dublin number, 01 812 one two and you little bit of patience stick with them on that number but you should eventually get through to a human being and by all accounts the person who sent that on to us said they spoke with a lovely girl who did her very best to help out the person that rang the Briary Gap in McCroom somebody was wondering about that saying it's gone into a derelict building work was due to start in the summer of 2020 so last year however there was a delay with the tender then COVID-19 came along and with the restrictions that came in, the tendering process has been delayed and negotiations are now continuing with the tendering process. Uh, Work was due to start in the first quarter of 2021. So it's now we should be seeing work on the Briary Gap. But because of restrictions, it now is unknown when the work will officially start. So I take it from that statement that the tendering process hasn't even been fully done because the negotiations are on ongoing. So we will be a year plus, would I be right in saying, before the work will start but it hasn't been forgotten about and I suppose that's the best piece of news. On banking on Bank of Ireland branches, uh, we can't oh, John Paul has contacted Bank of Ireland to see what's happening with their the physical buildings and also to ask that question that Michael put has suggested, do they own all of them or are they actually leased? And so we've asked them that as well, how many of the nine branches the physical buildings do they actually own and what are their plans? when they close the doors for good in those nine branches in September. So we await a reply on that. Mary in in Domami, not happy about people being forced to go online. She's again citing the issue that we keep speaking about. What happens if you don't have good broadband? Also, she makes the point, if you're living on a minimum wage or a low income, the cost of buying tablets and laptops and access to online banking, there's a cost involved in all of that. And as one of our listeners said, when they were in at the bank and the bank asked them to move everything online, they very kind of smartly said, Peter and Bandon said, sure, if I'm doing all the work, I'll be doing all the paperwork. Are you going to cut down on my service charges? And he said, all he got from the banker was a dirty look. So no, you'll still have to do all the work and you'll still be charged at the same. When we were talking about having restrictions just in the various counties and not having, and I made the point, what about the county borders? What would happen? How, how would they be policed? Would we have people coming from neighbouring counties in because services would be open in a particular county? And would they bring with it COVID? Would that be a risk? Someone says, why would the county borders be policed when more serious things like quarantine is discretionary or perhaps even a mere suggestion for those who came home from the UK at Christmas? And look where that got us, says a texter. And then on an email, 
email that I had in from Diane says Patricia I received in the post today a request from the Central Statistics Office to complete a survey of travel taken outside Ireland during February of 2021 a covering letter says it was important to complete this as it will help to assist them measure the impact of Covid on daily life and indeed on the travel industry is this government office not aware that the travel restrictions currently in place i.e. zero travel allowed. Yes, a few folk may have travelled, but surely a simple call to the airline or the ferry companies would provide the information on numbers doing so. I'd be interested to know the cost of preparing, sending and then analysing any results they may receive. Could you please investigate this on my behalf? What on earth is the Central Statistics Office thinking of? Or is it simply another government office trying to justify its existence? I have rang the office a few times to try and get some understanding on this survey. But I got put, when I did get put through to the correct department, the phone just rings out, says Diane, emailing us from uh, Skibbereen. I tell you, Diane, I am really, really slow to ever knock the Central Statistics Office. That's the job that they do. The job is to gather up that very kind of information that they're asking you to do. Now, they don't force you to do it. You don't have to do it. But I I always encourage people, if you do get anything from the Central Statistics Office, to please complete it uh, and send it back because some of the information that the Central Statistics Office comes out with is, is will form where we are and what we do going forward. They do the most incredible work and how often, certainly on this programme and other radio programmes and TV programmes and newspaper articles, will you read articles based on stats coming out from the Central Statistics uh, Office. And I know the point you're making that surely it should just be as simple of them ringing up the airlines and ringing up the ports to find out but all they get from them is top line figures like I do for example we went on to the Central Statistics Office just to get their latest um, the, the figures and they're the jaw dropping figures and it's because of the Central Statistics Office that we find out about it for example in January they're obviously now working on the February ones but in January 108 thousand passengers arrived in Ireland on overseas routes and in the same month 118,700 passengers departed from Ireland on overseas routes and then they they go through the amounts that that arrived in through ferries as well huge numbers and they still are way down and they were way down certainly on the figures for the month of December but I take it that they're asking individuals to fill in the forms because as you say they want to assist to measure the impact on COVID on somebody's daily life and on the travel industry so they get much more detail than just a top line figure. All they would get from the airlines is how many, but they don't get a picture of why were people travelling, what was the reason for the travel, was it work, was it essential travel? Whereas I think through the through you filling in the form, and again it's up to yourself. You don't you don't have to uh, do it. But I, I certainly very slow to knock the Central Statistics Office because I really do think they do amazing work. Eighteen fifty three 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 one zero three. Thank you uh, for your email, Diane. John Paul taking your calls. You can. Take text or WhatsApp 0862-103-103 and we are looking for your gardening questions, please. Court today on C103. With Sean Cusack Insurance's Kinsale, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about Work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited-edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie This is the Cork Today replay on C103. Gardening on C103 with Bandon Co-op Garden Centres in Bandon, Kinsale and Enniskeen. For top quality plants, advice and value, think Bandon Co-op Garden Centres. C103. And Peter Dowdell of theirishgardener.com joining me. Good afternoon to you, Peter. Good afternoon, Tricia. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. And we were talking earlier about the amount of people that are out cutting grass and that gorgeous smell of cut grass. There was the, is it the Hot House Flowers song, the, the smell of fresh cut grass filling up my senses. Yeah, yeah. and every, every time I hear that song, I think, yeah, and there's nothing like the smell of fresh cut grass. It's gorgeous. I did give my own the first cut of the, of the season at the weekend and it's just, oh, it's a fabulous time of the year. Yeah, I heard um, an interview on national radio where they were talking about smells and how important smells are. And it was one of the things they mentioned, the smell of cut grass. If you close your eyes, it can bring you back to your childhood because it's the same smell you would have experienced as a child. And lots of people have memories of being out in the garden, say, with family members, etc. Yeah, and I believe it's our, the, 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 this is from a Trivial Pursuit question about 50 years ago, uh, Trish. I think it's the sense, our sense of smell is the, se- the one of our five senses that's most closely connected with our memory. So there yeah. you go. That's why yeah, that's sense, a- sense bring us hurtling backwards. Yeah. yeah, it's fantastic. OK, let's get straight in. Lots of people have been out cutting the grass because there seems to be lawn questions uh, coming in, including one from Porrick in Glamworth. It says, question for Peter, please. I have a big garden. It's three quarters of an acre and the land is limey. Yes, there's moss and dead grass. But I recently got a rake for the back of the ride on lawn mower, which I hope will take care of the moss. But the lawn still needs a good fertiliser. If lawn gold is the suggested one that I use, I at €40 a bag, it would cost me up to €300 because of the size of the lawn. Is there a cheaper alternative, please? Not really, not if you've got a large lawn. I mean, anything anything's going to cost you. I don't know what what lawn gold costs, but, but I would think that anything is going to cost you between kind of for the those big bags, which will do three and four hundred square meters, are all going to cost. I would say somewhere between thirty and forty euro a bag. So it, it depends. Like if if you want a cheaper alternative, like an agricultural um, fertilizer, you'll be putting on a chemical fertilizer, and I don't know. It, it, it might it might be cheaper, but in the long run are you wasting your money do you know what I mean because you're yeah. just giving it a quick fix of nitrogen and you're not you're not working with the pH so you'll have moss coming back and you, you know so if if he's put on the, the, the scarifying rake to the back of the ride on like that's going to 
uh, as he says, that's going to hopefully re- re- certainly alleviate, if not remove, the moss. And it'll also help with the problem of thatch, which is kind of horizontal growing grass. And that is probably the biggest piece of the jigsaw, in fact, is to, to scarify it at least once a year. Uh, and that creates good growing conditions around the base of the plant. If you're on limey soil, moss shouldn't be a huge problem. It shouldn't recolonize it. Um, but in terms of in terms of a cheaper solution, I don't know. Like you'll get cheaper products like chemical fertilizers, but I'm not sure how worth it they are. If mm. you know what I mean, there are there there is another product then called Nature Safe, which do which is they're an organic brand and they do uh, a feed, an organic feed, and there's a bit of extra seed in it, so it kind of colonizes the patches as well. But again, in terms of price, I'm not sure if it'd be a cheaper option, but it's another very good option. Okay, um, just on this garden centres, because this came up earlier and I said I'd ask you, are garden centres closed because of restrictions? You probably want you probably want to ask one of the government ministers to be to get yeah. an accurate answer. But uh, my understanding of this is so landscape contractors come under the construction number. Okay, so construction. Okay, Peter. Okay, say that again. No, you, you, I, you were just I, you were just breaking up can you there. Hear me? Yeah, you were just breaking Sorry. up. Landscapers come under construction, I, I was, and you mentioned that last week. That's why gardeners can't work. Yes, yes. to the best of my knowledge, no, Trisha. Yeah. And then garden centres, if the I don't think they're considered essential retail unless they have essential products such as fuel or food or something like that. Many garden centres, of course, do have essential products and therefore can open. But that's only my understanding of yeah, it, Trisha. So yeah. I, I, and I, it's, I stand it, to be because corrected. Because somebody's making the point that love to go to, obviously their local garden centre is closed, and they're making the point that the supermarkets are able to sell bedding plants and how unfair is that on garden centres and I know that very same argument came out on Valentine's Day that florist shops weren't allowed to do click and collect they could do deliveries but they weren't able to do click and collect and yet you could go into any supermarket and pick up your dozen red roses which was unfair it just seems to be unfair competition and I think it is very unfair and it goes back to even before Christmas when you had where the supermarkets were selling baby clothes and all that, you know, yeah. etc. It is very unfair, but, and I, you know, I'm always speaking up for the garden centre industry and the horticulture industry and I will continue to, but we are in desperate times yeah. at the moment and we all need to stay at home. It's as simple yeah. as that. Like yeah. we, we can look for ways around things, but we need to stay away from each other and we need to stay at home. It's as you simple are, as you that. You are so right. Okay, hi. So this kind of ties in with garden centres. Hi, Peter. Is it too early for potting plants? i.e. pansies. I'm dying for a bit of instant colour on my patio. Do you think pansies are in garden centres already? There are plenty of primroses about, but many of them seem to be past their sell-by date. No point in potting lots of them and they'll be gone in a week or two. Are pansies available? Is it too early? No, it's not too early for pansies because pansies are kind of universal. You can nearly get them 12 months of the year. And I, for me, yes, I would say they are a better buy because they're more resilient. A lot of the primroses and polyanthus that are out there, they're kind of F1 hybrids and they don't, well, so are the pansies, but the, the, the primula F1 hybrids tend not to, to like our very wet weather. And by God, we've had wet weather recently, Trish. So pansies, I would say, yes, they're a better buy. I would say they are available and any garden centres are open, certainly. I would think they'd have pansies uh, and you'd be fine to plant them out at this time of the year. Obviously, your, your, your later summer bedding wouldn't be available yet, but pansies, certainly, yes. Okay, Joan in Mallow has got two raised beds. They're wooden boxes. First time ever using them, so she's unsure what to do. She said, do I put clay in the bottom of it and then compost? And then if I, if I do put clay in, do I buy bags or do I buy bags of topsoil? I don't really know how to make up the raised beds. They're wooden boxes. 
Okay, well, the great thing about a raised bed is just this, that you, you can create ex entirely your own uh, soil type, if you like, your your, your own growing environment. So if, uh, she doesn't say whether, what she wants to grow. So whether you're growing edibles or ornamentals. Um, so it, it, like if you're growing edibles, for example, if you were growing carrots, you would want a stone-free soil. So, I mean, it gives you the perfect op uh, opportunity to create a very sandy, well-drained, stone-free soil, which is perfect for growing carrots. But then if you're growing something else, you might want to, you know, you might want a layer of rock at the bottom to give you extra drainage. So it does depend on what you want to do. But so that's the first point I would make. And then after that, yeah, you would you would maybe put a layer of gravel or stone at the very bottom for drainage. Uh, and then you would have have a mixture of topsoil and compost coming up to the top. But uh, a couple of wheelbarrows or bags of of, of of mixed soil and compost would be the best. Whether you buy it in a garden centre or whether you, you, you get it from your own garden, the difference being that if you get topsoil in bags and compost in bags from a garden centre, it's, it's kind of guaranteed and certified weed-free and, and hopefully disease and pathogen-free. Um, whereas obviously if you're getting topsoil from your own garden and homemade compost, it's not obviously guaranteed to be weed free. Uh, however, I wouldn't let that really put me off using it unless there was a problem with perennial weeds in the area, such like Japanese knotweed or anything like that. Uh, I'd be inclined to use my own if, if you have it, uh, but if not, a trip to the local garden centre and a few bags of topsoil and compost mixed, I would say would be the best. Okay, th this is just coming by WhatsApp, so I can't get the picture onto you straight away. But somebody sent in a picture of a laurel hedge. Most of it has holes in the leaves, and there's a, you can see the laurel hedge, and that where the holes are, there's like brown around it, as if it's almost like frost damage, and then a very clear hole in the leaves. It's on a laurel hedge. That's probably a thing called shot hole, Trish. We have we had that funnily enough, I think last week or the week before as well, with a Portuguese laurel hedge with lots of mini holes in the leaves. It's probably shot hole, which is um it's kind of precursor to canker and Laris is a prunus, so I'm fairly sure I'm going from memory now that it's bacterial canker. But anyway, whether or which laurel is resilient and laurel is tough. So I would say a good pruning uh and feed it then with something like the nature safe that I was talking about earlier on, the nature safe liquid seaweed feed, which is a good a good feed to, to strengthen and to give plants a good G up at the moment. Um, now, we're, we're into March, so realistically, you're not supposed to be pruning now as the Wildlife Act. You have up to the end of February to do it. You know, at the risk of, of being arrested or getting my knuckles wrapped, I would say, if you want to prune it, do it today. Don't wait till tomorrow because we are into the Wildlife Act and getting any later than now, we should not be 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 cutting, cutting back yeah. our hedges yeah uh, this, I, I'm assuming Sue is sending in this rather tongue in cheek but she sent in a gorgeous uh, photograph of her poncetia and says Peter how do I kill my poncetia it's looking far too good and I don't want to keep it until next year it's so out of season I want to be looking at daffodils not a poncetia and she sent in a stunning photograph just taken today of a poncetia in full flight. The beautiful red leaves. I don't like Sue. No, I, I, I mean, she, like you've Sue. done remarkably well, <laughs> Sue, I'm telling you, to be keeping it that good. It'll eventually, it'll eventually die away. It will eventually, won't it? Yeah, she's done three months... Three months better than yeah. me, I suppose. How do you kill your pon how do you kill your poncetti? Well then give it to me and I'll take care of that for you. <laughs> <laughs> it will eventually die off. Uh, so enjoy it. Enjoy yeah. it. And I know it is it is enjoy a bit it. out of season. And someone else is suggesting to Porrick with the big lawn to set to set an area of the lawn as a wildlife garden. He'd be a big favour to the pollinators. 
That'd be one way around Absolutely. it, wouldn't great, it? Great yeah. advice. Yeah, great yeah. advice. Yeah. It would yeah. Be. Okay. Sean in Liscarrel, how do you remove moss from a lawn, please? And there's lots of people. I'm just summing it up with one question, but lots of people have okay. moss. Yeah. I can imagine, yeah, lots of questions dealing with that at the moment. So we were talking earlier about scarifying. So this time of the year, March, is the best month to scarify. Now, what scarifying is, Trish, is you're you're basically giving the, the, the top of the lawn a good hard rake. You know, it's a mechanical rake because... What happens with lawns, and this is unavoidable really, but you get a build-up on the soil surface, so at the base of the grass plant, you get a build-up of dying and decaying organic matter, grass leaves, leaves, all that kind of thing. And as you're mowing the lawn weekly, uh, you know, where the grass should be growing up vertically towards the sky, the wheels of the mower will push it. And particularly if it's damp or wet, it'll push it so it starts growing horizontally along the ground. And this leads to, you know, very poor air circulation and ideal conditions for the development of um, of fungal problems down around the base of the plant. And this buildup of decaying matter is what we refer to as patch. Uh, and in these conditions, of course, uh, the, the, it's ideal for the development of moss. So by scarifying it, if you can imagine, as I say, you're raking out the, the just into the top half an inch or an inch of the soil. So you're raking up all this horizontal grass, all this decaying matter and all this moss. And you're you're allowing the grass and the soil, if you like, to breathe again. So you're allowing air to get back in there and good, healthy grass. So scarifying it at this time of the year is, I would say, in terms of annual maintenance, the most important thing you can do uh, because you're you're creating healthier conditions for good grass growth. After that, I'd go back to my old friend, the lawn gold, uh, and feed the lawn with that because you're maintaining optimum pH levels with the, the lawn gold, which is optimum for grass growth, but, but it's a pH level that moss can't grow in. So after scarifying it, treat it with the lawn gold, and that will stay on top of your moss problem. And it's uh, for this time of the year, hopefully to kind of answer a lot of the questions in one, if you like, Trish, scarifying it, and then treated with the lawn gold is what I will be doing with the lawn now at this time of the year. Brian in, in Drina wants to know about an, an osterium, oster, osterium, oste, osteosperum. Maybe, maybe, maybe osteospermum. Yeah. Oste, osteosperm, that's it. That's with it. a pink yeah. flower. Is it all right to cut it back to the ground, the pink flowering one? So I'm presuming it's a hardy one and it's outside because they're not all hardy, Trish. They're, they're Cape Daisy. They're native to South Africa. So some of them aren't uh, hardy, so they wouldn't have tolerated our winter. But there are hardy forms. And I'm presuming that this is one. Um, so I would wait a while because we just could get some cold weather again. And while it is hardy, it's not you know, the toughest plant out there. So I would wait till till the temperatures increase a bit. I would leave it off probably till kind of early to mid-April, another month or so. Then the answer to your question, yes, you can cut it back very, very hard. Not completely to ground level. It's not a herbaceous fella. So you wouldn't cut it that it's, it does, you wouldn't cut it to zero foliage, but you could cut it to within a few inches of the ground, providing you're leaving some leaf on it. But you want to do that, as I say, when the temperatures are higher, so it, it's actively growing and it'll, it'll start putting on new green shoots the day after you cut it back, if you like. So leave it for another four or five weeks. Hi, Mitchiston listener. I've got a variegated holly. If I trim it now, will I have berries on it next year or is it too late to do it now? If you, I would say you're too late. They're going to come into flower over the next couple of months and those flowers obviously become the berries. So if you if you trim it now, you will sack. Where are we? We're March. Yeah, I would say you're a bit too late. The, 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 the time I would do that would be 
December, January. So, so trim it and use the berries at the same time, if you like, and then you should still have flowers the following year. But I would say if you do it now, you won't harm the plant at all, but you will lose your berries for this year, I would think, yes. OK, and Anna said that she said, as always, I listened to the gardening slot on Wednesday with Peter and I had to smile when I heard you last week refer to something that was an unusual question. It was to do with something eating daffodils. Lo and behold, as my daffodils started to come out, something appears to be eating it. I've never seen it before. Take care and thank you. What I would say, the, the question last week seemed to be that the flowers were appearing with holes in it which is a new one, but I, the, it's quite common for flowers and flower buds to be eaten by slugs and snails at this time of the year, which is very possibly what's what's happening here. Um, last week's one sounded to me, you know, maybe I was wrong, but it sounded to me like that the, there was holes being formed in the flower in the bulb, which could be a, a type of slug or a snail or even a beetle. But if it's just that the bud is appearing over the ground and then being eaten and the flower is opening up then a bit raggedy, that's quite common, I'm afraid, and it, it is slug damage. So get yourself some slug slug repellent products such as the the slug gone wool pellets or maybe get yourself some of the organic slug pellets the ferric phosphate ones um to take care of that i'd imagine that's more most likely what it is that they're being eaten over the ground by slugs and snails because i've seen that quite a bit this season Mm. actually and any advice on how to keep cats out of a flower bed (laughs) um there are products you can get to varying degrees of success. You'll get them in garden centres when they are allowed to reopen. Um, one is called, probably the most effective of all of them, it's called Get Off My Garden. It's a pretty self-explanatory yeah. name, but that is quite a good one. It's a crystal. Now, the problem with any of these things, whether you use pepper dust, which is another one, or, or the Get Off My Garden crystal or any of them, it's to be diligent because with cats, and I'm sure your vet will... will back me up on this one Trish when you're when you're trying to get cats to stop coming into an area it's all about breaking the habit so in other words if you put down the, any of those products just once then the, you know after a couple of weeks or with the rain it'll wash away and the cat will keep coming but if you keep reapplying it and be diligent about it for that first few weeks once the cat is out of the habit of coming in there he won't he or she won't come They'll back go somewhere else this is the hope anyway and this yeah. tends to be the case yeah um now you can do one other thing which might be sound a bit cruel but i have done it myself for dogs and i am a dog and cat lover and that's just get some thorny branches and maybe lie them down in the area because what will happen is the cat or the dog will will just they'll just pinch and prick themselves it won't won't do any long-term damage don't worry i'm not i'm not promoting being cruel to the cat but uh, it will put her or him or her off coming back there obviously right? makes it uncomfortable okay are you streaming is you still doing your online stuff this week yes we are friday we're doing a, for the for all these questions that we can't get to trish uh, on friday friday at one o'clock on the irish gardener on facebook i'm doing a live questions and answers so okay. uh, you can send in your questions and and uh, yeah and we hope to have a couple of of, of guest gardeners with me over the coming weeks Brilliant. as well so we'll, there'll be more than just myself there'll be a few of us answering questions okay and we'll talk again next wednesday thank you for that peter Look forward to it. Thanks. Take care. That's uh, Peter Dowdell, the IrishGardener.com. And I've just had a lovely WhatsApp in from the gang in the Marina Medical Centre in Bantry to say they have started vaccinating today. The over 85 year olds, they say a great day. We are finally vaccinating our over 85 year olds. What excitement. And that's just the staff. Go team Marina in Bantry. So that's where we leave you for today. Mark Malone is in for Nick Richards for the afternoon. Thanks to John Paul, the producer. We're back with you tomorrow at 10. Onto the line, Patricia Messenger. Very good afternoon. Stay safe. Court today on C103. With Sean Cusack Insurance's Kinsale. Now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. For motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance, cmig.ie. 
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.